we're switching gears uh, really for the next couple of months, and we're just going to sort of take our time walking through this book. Uh, I, I showed my cards in the last service. I told the group, and, and some of them are, are like New Testament guys that, that work at Southwestern, that I really enjoy preaching the Old Testament way more than the New. Uh, and uh, for a variety of reasons, but there's a lot of things that, that are there that are oftentimes very subtle, but they're things and they're truths that God uses to speak and to shape to his people. One of the reasons why we're in the book of 1 Samuel is because it has this overarching theme that begins to remind us as God's children about God's care in the midst of very difficult times, uncertain times, and in particular, what it addresses is God's care in the midst of failed leadership and how God provides for his people, how he loves them, how he meets their needs when people, human beings, they, they let us down. Now, in the context of what's going on, there's a, there's a crisis that exists. First Samuel begins really as the book of Judges ends. And I want to read for us the last verse that's found in the book of Judges, Judges 21, verse 25. And it just simply says this. This is the context in which this story begins to emerge. He says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the book of Judges is this sort of downward spiral of God's people where he sets a standard for them. They do what's right in their own eyes and they get a little bit lower in their depravity and then, and then he brings somebody else to come in to help lead them and guide them. They follow them for a little while then they start to do what's right in their own eyes and it just goes spiraling down over and over and over again until we get to the end of the book and they're still seeking to do what is right in their own eyes. But every time they do that, God brings someone, a deliverer, a rescuer, a redeemer to come in and to sort of help set them straight. And so let's pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, where the text says this, there was a certain man of Ramathium, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanai. And he had the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, with some weird, crazy names, right? And then it says in verse 2, he says this, Elkanah had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, which means gracious, and the name of the other, uh, Penina, is, means prolific, or it can mean pearl in other translations. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So when we, when we get to the place in, in 1 Samuel, we are meant to be immediately struck by this last little phrase that exists in verse 2. One had children and one didn't have children. Growing up in, in Hannah's time and existing really in this time, to, to have no children was sort of a, uh, it was a, a stigma. It was viewed as a curse. Your, your children were everything to you back then because back in those days, there was no retirement plan and 401k. There were no assisted living uh, programs to be put into. So you had lots of kids and then you played the odds that one day your kids were going to take care of you when you could no longer work. This is the reason why uh, Haley and I, we have five children, because we're betting that at least one of them is going to care for us in, in old age, and we're going to move in with them at some point. And, and I, I didn't tell the last service this, but I'm going to tell you this just as a tidbit. It's not in the text, but this is good advice. Listen, parents, you better be nice to your kids, because they are the ones that are going to determine when you go into an old person home, all right? So be kind and be gracious to them, always. Well, Hannah exists and she has no children. 
And it was viewed upon in that society and in that culture, in that moment, as something was wrong with her. There was this curse that existed with her. But yet, Peniah had the children of Elkanah, and, and she was blessed, at least culturally speaking. Now, I want to say this before we get too far away and too far down the road. There is a uh, movement in, in culture, in particular within uh, Southern Baptist culture right now that some of you are familiar with and some of you are not, and that's okay if you're not, but there is a movement right now that's going on that is seeking to minimize and to relegate the role of women in the life of churches, to put them on the back seat. To put them where no one can see them and, and to, to allow this sort of authoritarian uh, male idea of, of, of hierarchy that exists. And, and they're trying to apply it very broadly to, to all women, most all women that exist within the church. Can I just say this to you, that from the life of Hannah, that when we find remarkable people in this life, we can usually trace it all the way back to a remarkable woman. Almost every single time. Our most famous Southern Baptist is actually a female who regularly preached the gospel and proclaimed it in the uttermost parts of the world over in China, and her name is Lottie Moon, the most famous Southern Baptist. And so when we see good Men and good women, we can often trace back their, their goodness aside from the Lord, and we can trace it back to some very remarkable women that spoke into their lives and that taught them and that, and that uh, showed them how it is they were to follow and, and how it is they were to lead. But Hannah's barrenness, and the reason why the text brings this out is for another reason. You see, Hannah's barrenness in this moment is really meant to, to correspond to the barrenness that existed within the, the people of Israel. Later on, we read in verse 4 and 5 that the Lord God was the one that closed her wombs. We believe God's sovereign. He opens and closes wombs, and we believe he still does that, and he allows those things to, to happen. But, but in this particular instance, we, we find them in the context of judges, spiritually barren and devoid of, of a heart that's running after God. And what is meant to happen is we are meant to see Hannah's barrenness alongside the spiritual barrenness of Israel that existed. That these were a people that were still trying to do what was right in their own eyes. And, and they were seeking to, to do what they wanted to do rather than seeking to, to be the people precisely of who God was calling them to be. And I know that Mother's Day is quickly approaching. And Mother's Day is one of those holidays that we, we bring special attention to, to our moms and, and we celebrate those things. But Mother's Day can be a very difficult day for some people, whether you've lost loved ones or perhaps you have found yourself in a similar situation like Hannah where you've not been able to, to be a mom and you, and you want to. And can I just say this to everyone in this room right now that uh, being barren and not having children is not your identity no more than having having lots of children and being a mom is your identity as well. Neither one of those, whether having lots of kids or no kids, whether it being married or, or whether it is being single, that is not where your worth and your identity comes from. It comes and it rests at the finished work of Jesus. And we lean into that for, to find our worth and, and to know that we are worthy because Christ has made us worthy. And so Hannah 
is wrestling with these things, and they're difficult things. And then we pick up in verse 3, and it says this. Now, this man, his husband, used to go up year by year from this city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord to the Lord of hosts at a place called Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant happened to be, and uh, where the two sons of Eli were, were the priests. And we're going to talk more about those two guys uh, next week and in the weeks to come. They were really terrible and, and awful people that were serving in the house of the Lord. But I, what I want you to notice is this phrase, the Lord of hosts. In the Hebrew, it, it actually reads a little bit different. It just simply says, Yahweh Sabaoth which just simply means almighty. And, and what he's referring to when he talks about it, and it uses it in that terms, we see it over 230 different times in the Old Testament. And when God is called the Lord of hosts, what they're recognizing is his ability to call down armies, legions of angels at any given point. It's a word and a phrase that's ascribed to him that speaks to his omnipotence, that he is sovereign, and that he is in control. And the idea here is that as he goes to the house of the Lord, he, he goes to the house of the Lord, of the God, who can call down the, the armies of angels at any given point, and he goes and he worships. And so the writer of Samuel is, is sort of setting it up a little bit for us to see this idea that the God who can call down the armies can also open and close the womb at any given time. Verse 4 continues on, and he says, And on the day... When Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, it says he gave a double portion because he loved her. And I got lost in about five books of five Old Testament scholars that spent uh, numerous pages arguing whether or not that word double out of the Hebrew was actually the, the intended meaning there. And where I sort of circled back around on it was just simply this. It doesn't necessarily mean, uh, I think the ESV renders it wrong, that she got twice as much as everybody else, but that word is better rendered as she got more of the choice portions of the meal. She got the best part of the meal. Why? Because she was favored and she was loved. But to Hannah, verse 5, he gives the double portions because he loved her. But then it goes on and it says in verse 6 that her rival, better translated, is not a rival but a tormentor in her life. Someone who enjoyed uh, being bitter and spiteful to her that used to provoke her. Her rival would provoke her grievously to irritate her because of what this thing the Lord had done to close her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and she would not eat. She wept and she wouldn't eat. When it says that this tormentor began to provoke her, that word provoke, it carries with it this idea of like a loud roar and a thunder. It's this word picture that exists that, that it wasn't this sort of silent undermining that, that she would do towards Hannah. It, it was deliberate. It was allowed. It was put on display. It was this level of vindictiveness that, that existed as she would just cast Hannah aside and try and everything that she could do to make her feel as awkward and as uncomfortable as she humanly possibly could. And this goes on year after year, day by day, she is provoked. And eventually it brings Hannah to this place where it says she began to weep and, and she stopped eating as she endured this 
provocation, but I want you to notice something that I've never noticed before until this week. Notice in verse 7 when he says this, so it goes on year by year, but notice the location of where the provocation takes place regularly, in the house of the Lord. Like in the church, in the temple, as, as they worship, this was where she chose to, to really put her, her contempt on display to her rival and to torment her. And I think by way of application, that has some, some meaning and maybe a reminder gently for us this morning that just because I come to church doesn't mean that I'm not lonely. And just because I come to church doesn't mean that, uh, that I cannot be tormented or, or talked about or gossiped about or, or slandered. Coming to church oftentimes on Sunday mornings can be one of the loneliest places in all of the city. When God's people are not on mission with him, when God's people are not trying to practice the, the gift of hospitality, they're not trying to receive one another, we can come to church and we can feel completely isolated and we can feel completely alone if we're not aware. Growing up, I used to hear preachers and evangelists, oftentimes well-meaning, and I've been guilty of saying this, when we, when we come into the house, we, just, we leave all of our baggage outside, and we come in and we seek to worship the Lord unhindered. And, and as I've gotten older, the more I've realized just theologically how incredibly wrong that statement is that I've heard. And the reason why it's wrong is because God, in his sovereignty and in his goodness, does not want you to leave your stuff outside. But rather, he wants you to bring it in and he wants you to place it at the altar, to put it at the foot of the cross and, and let him endure with you and alongside you that in your loneliness he can come alongside you and he can be your companion. And in your loneliness and in your struggle and in whatever issues that you may have, you're able to come alongside other believers and be built up for the sake of the kingdom so that you can then go and keep building other people up as you were built up. But I find it incredible that in this moment that the location of this provocation and, and this, this annual, this ritual that exists was in the house of the Lord. And I think that's a reminder to us to be careful and guarded always about perhaps how people may feel when they come. And so what we say here is we think circles are better than rows. We love y'all sitting in rows, but we really like y'all getting in circles and being in community with one another and caring for one another so that you don't have to be alone. And you come alongside each other in faith as we pursue the Lord together and as we worship the Lord together. But all of these things took place in this physical location in the house of the Lord. Friend, let that not be true of us. And so she weeps and she would not eat at the end of verse seven, but look back in the text in verse eight. It continues on, and Elkanah, her husband, said to her, she sees her doing this, he says, Hannah, why do you weep, and, and why are you not eating? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? There are two things about this interaction with Elkanah and, and Hannah that I think are, are worth noting. Number one is this, we can applaud and recognize the initiation that he takes in pursuing his grieving wife. Like it's a good thing when, when we draw in and we go sit next to and we're with our, our hurting spouse or, or our spouse that's having a hard time with whatever that is. It, it shows a, a level of tenderness and a level of care that exists as he is seeking to sort of meet her where she's at. And so the challenge for husbands today is this. 
What if sometime today, this evening, what if you got your spouse and, and you sat across from her, away from the kids and, and in private, and you just began to ask her a series of questions to sort of work on your marriage a little bit and sort of to be like Elkanah in this moment and just ask them a simple question. Have I, have I been loving you the way that, that you need to be loved right now? Do you feel that, that, that I am, am demonstrating, I know you know that I love you and cherish you, but, but are there some tangible ways that I can show that better this, this week and, and help meet you wherever you are? They don't have to be hurting and grieving, just questions where you look them in the eye and say, how can I serve you better this week? What are some things that I can do for you this week to assure you of my love and my affection for you, that I'm, I'm on your team? Is it, is it parenting your kids and getting on the same page? Is it just spending time with one another and being with one another, that we are constantly and perpetually working on improving our marriages and improving our homes? But I also want you to notice at the end of verse 8, this peculiar question that he ends with. Notice he says, he starts off and, and doing pretty good. Why do you weep? Why aren't you eating? Why are you sad? And then he makes this almost incredulous statement where he, he says this to her, am I not more to you than 10 sons? So what he does in this moment, he makes this really uh, boneheaded husband statement where he tries to switch her grief and not enter into her pain, but rather to make her grief about him somehow. I mean, imagine this. You come home one day, you see your spouse crying. They're not eating. They're, they're starving themselves. They can't eat. They're, there's depression, anxiety, grief, all of those things. And you're like, bro, what's your problem? Am I not good enough for you? Like you make it about yourself. And you think, you read that, and you go, man, what a, what a boneheaded thing to do. And, and, and listen, here's, here's the application to that. More often than not, when people are hurting and people are struggling, one of the very best things that you can do is just go sit beside them and do not say a word. Just be a presence in their life. Be a shoulder that they can lean on, someone they can then cry to and just hear them and, and be with them. And then if you are going to speak to bring comfort in some way, we, we use those moments to point them back to the Lord and his, and his scripture. So, and don't quote this scripture to your wife and say you're quoting scripture. Am I not worth more than 10 sons to you? You might get slugged in the face uh, in the process. You'll make her grief worse, but, but just simply go. And, and I don't know that I'm being too harsh on him in this moment or, or not. Uh, I also think it's, it's on the other end where, where you're grieving and, and people say boneheaded things to you from time to time. And I think that that's the other application there is just people, when people are grieving and full of anguish, we don't know what to say sometimes. And so we say things that are misplaced and, and that don't minister and really don't connect. And, and so when someone does that to you, when you're in anguish, just be gracious to them. Thank you. Give them a pat and then just sort of walk away and go to the, go to the other side of the room. Bless your, you could say bless your heart if, if that makes you feel better. But we show grace in the process and, and we lean into that grace. Keep reading with me in verse 9. He says this, so after... They had eaten, they drunk in Shiloh. Hannah 
rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed, and she began to pray to the Lord, and she wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said this. There's that phrase, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. What the writer of Samuel is doing is he's reminding us by, as she begins to address the Lord who can call down all the armies, the Lord who is all powerful, would you, would you just remember your servant? She does a couple of things that I think should be characteristic of all of our prayers in the midst of all of our anguish and all of our grief. And number one is the most obvious. Immediately when she experiences this in this moment, she turns to the Lord in her time of need. I think sometimes we can be guilty of turning to other things in our times of need. We turn to, to bad behaviors. We turn to, to a wrong thought life. We, we begin to dabble into things that easily satisfy our hearts and our souls. And all we receive in the process is this temporary feeling of pleasure. And what Hannah does in this moment is she turns to the Lord in her time of need, but she also recognizes who God is in this moment. So she looks to him and she says, Lord of, of hosts, Lord of all these armies. And, and she recognizes and knows what God is capable of, how powerful he is, how strong he is, how sovereign he is. So she turns to him, knowing who he is, understanding who he is. Friends, this morning, do you know who God is? Do you know what, what he is capable of? Do you know how powerful he is? Do you know that he cares? Hannah goes on and she understands not just who God is, but she understands who she is in light of that. And what she does is she refers to herself as the servant. I, I'm just your servant. You're my master. You're the one that I'm following. My life is disposable in your eyes. You can do whatever you want with me, but would you look upon my affliction, the affliction of your servant, God. You've called me by name. You redeemed me. You saved me. Would you just hear me for a moment? And she lets her request be made known to a good and caring and kind God. She knew what she wanted. Prayer is one of those things where I think when we take in the idea that God is sovereign and omnipotent and, and he can do all things, and I think sometimes in our bad theology, listen to me, because God is so sovereign, why do I need to pray? Why should I bother a sovereign God of the universe with my little menial requests, my small insignificant requests? And I think sometimes there can be a level of guilt that exists in the life of the believer that we don't want to bother God with, with the small details of our lives. And so we don't ever ask and, and nothing could be further from the truth. God cares about the significantly big things in your life and he also cares about the little insignificant things in your life. He's good, not just in times of crisis. He's good, not just in the midst of anguish, that he, he cares about you as a human being because he desires, according to Scripture, to see you flourish as a human being. He wants to see you do things for his namesake and for his kingdom. He desires good things. He's prepared good things for you before the foundation of the world. Why? Because he's a good God. He's a caring God. 
And Hannah understood this in this moment, and she says, Lord, would you look upon your servant and, and my, my affliction? Would you hear me? And then she makes him a promise. She says, listen, you grant me a son, then no razor is going to touch his head. And what she does is she basically gives him up, and it's a Nazarite vow that, that there were a lot of things to it, but when you were dedicated to the house of the Lord, uh, you never cut your hair. It was just the thing that you did to set yourself apart from everyone else. So I want you to notice what's happening here in this moment. Children were the retirement plan. Without children, you, you had nobody to care for you in your old age. And so you wanted children because you wanted to be cared for in that moment. And so for her to then say, God, grant me a children, but then I'm going to give him up and he's going to take this vow and he's not going to be able to take care of me because he'll be doing some other things and, and serving in the house of the Lord. And so she says, I'm okay with that, but I still want a son. I desire to have a son. I don't want to be barren. Would you would you hear the affliction of your servant? And so she prays and says this, verse 12, uh, 13, 14, and 15, pick up where Eli, kind of a worthless priest, comes in. He thinks she's drunk. You know, she's like, you, you drunk woman, what are you doing? She's babbling. She's like, look, I'm not drunk. Like, I'm talking to the Lord. He sort of rebukes and, and sees that. And I want to pick up in verse 16, where it says this, do not regard your servant as worthless, a woman of destruction. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered and he said to her, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. In that moment, we see the Lord speaking through Eli and, and being a presence to Hannah in the midst of her anguish and her grief. And and here's what I want you to see from Hannah's prayer. The text goes on, and he says in verse 19, Then they arose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their house in Ramah, and, and Elkanah and Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So here's how we wrap this up. Hannah's prayer... I think it did two things. I think it changed Hannah and it changed her circumstance. Prayer, more often than not, it, it, the goal of it really is that my, my will would be aligned rightly and correctly with God's will. So when we pray and we pray things according to Scripture, God will change our wills and he'll change our desires and he'll change our ambitions. We become changed. The more we talk to God and the more we yield to him, he, he changes us. But also what is equally true is that prayer does make a difference because God, in his sovereignty, accomplishes his sovereign will through men and women. As we pray, that's how he responds to us. And he responds because he hears and he knows things and, and he knows all things and he doesn't live in, in, a, in a time like we do because he's eternal, he's immutable, he never changes. He sees the timeline quite differently than we do, but he uses and accomplishes his sovereign will through the prayers of the men and the women that he has called and brought to salvation. Your prayers, big and small and everywhere in between, they matter. And I love how it ends that she conceived in due time and bore a son and called him Samuel. Friends, this morning, um, the invitation is really simple for the church. The invitation looks like this. Um, what are you praying for and asking God for in your life? 
No matter how small or how big, what are you asking him for? And, and if you're not asking, why not? He says to, to ask and, and you'll be given. It doesn't mean you're going you're gonna to get it in your time or you may not even get the thing that you're specifically asking for, but he may change your desires and your thoughts and he may answer it in a completely different way. But we ask, why? Because he's a good God and he wants to hear his, the voice of his children and see us and, and talk to us and commune with us. He wants to be with us. But maybe our prayers after our small things in life, my challenge for us would be to Maybe pray some bigger prayers. That God cares about the small things in my life, but he also cares about the significant things, about seeing people far from God come to know Christ. Putting me in positions and places where I can evangelize and, and, and share the gospel with, with lost people that don't know him and are not walking with him. Someone that I can bring to this fellowship, to bring into my circle, to come and to live life with me alongside me, shoulder to shoulder, locking arms, and we're going to go do this together. You see, the Lord is doing something here at our church in the city of Fort Worth. And I do not believe, I refuse to believe that our very best days were 20 years ago or 50 years ago. The very best days for Travis Avenue Baptist Church are in the future. The best days with the right people that are walking by, by faith and, and living in obedience and trusting in his scripture and living on mission with him, doing what he's called us to do. But maybe today you're spiritually barren like Israel was. Maybe there's some idols in your life that have crept in and are taking control of you and you need to confess those and be right and, and stop doing what's right in your own eyes. Can I just say pastorally and, and gently, out of all the Greek and Hebrew that I've read, out of all the books that I've read, when it comes to sin, the most profound thing that, that I can just say to you this morning is just stop it. Like just stop. It's wrong. It's quit. You don't have to, uh, have to have a relationship with your dad, you know, when you were younger to understand that. You don't have to know your personality trait or Enneagram number. Like, none of those things matter. Like, just stop it. Walk in faith. Walk in obedience. Be with Jesus. Let him love you as you love him. Pray with me. Father, we ask that uh, you would change us in this room today, that you would make us more like your son Jesus. We do believe you're the Lord of hosts and you can call down armies. You're powerful. You're sovereign, Lord. We trust that. We know that to be true. But I pray that you would remind some in this room today that you are not bothered by our small requests. I, I pray for some of them that have large requests, they would turn to you first before they turn to the things of this world. Father, would you help us do that in this place today? Would you breathe life into us through your spirit, that we wouldn't be barren as Hannah was in this story, as Israel was, where we were doing right in our own eyes. Would you help us walk accordingly? So Father, now we sing in a time of response. We call upon your name to save us, to be with us, and to move, Father. For we ask these things in Christ's name. And God's people said,